couple of housekeeping matters as, as we begin to dive into the book of Zechariah. My wife told me when I got home last week that I pronounced his name wrong the entire service, so I want to stand corrected and say it's not Zechariah, it's Zechariah with an E. All right, so from here on out, I'll do better. She's right, I stand corrected. It's Zechariah, not Zechariah, all right? Uh, he is uh, in the Minor Prophets. If you happen to be our guest, and we have some guests, we're really glad you're here, but um, we are studying in our Sunday morning Bible time, we're studying what we call, what the Bible calls, or other people call the minor prophets. And uh, these are 12 men who wrote prophetically to Israel in, in the life of the nation of Israel. And they're called minor, again, I've said this many times, not because their message is not significant, but because the amount of writing that they wrote is, uh, is small, uh, or is smaller than the major prophets. And, and so that's why they're called minor. Now, the second housekeeping matter that I want to, uh, to talk about for just a second is that I want to acknowledge that my application last week did not flow from the text. I, I had, uh, I think it was two people say, Jimmy, how did you see that application in that text? And so I want to, I want to, I want to make it clear that what I tried to do at the end of last week's talk if you were here, remember there was the first part of Zechariah, he has eight visions in one night. And, uh, and there are eight consecutive visions, and really they're all about encouraging Israel. Well, in the fifth vision, which is in the fourth chapter, God gives Zechariah a vision where he tells him it's not going to be by power, it's not going to be by might, but it's going to be by God's spirit that the temple is going to be rebuilt. I'm doing this. This has nothing to do with you guys. I'm going to make this happen. And so I took that, that truth and I applied it to us, and this is what I said. I said, uh, you know, what is something in our lives that God's going to do that doesn't depend on us? I mean, it's not by our power and it's not by our might. And so what I did was I said, well, it's, it's, here's the thing I want to encourage you with. It is that God is going to raise us from the dead, immortal one day, never to die again. And in that immortality, he is going to give us a spirit that never sins. And that is our hope and that is our expectation. And that's not by power and not by might, but that is by God's spirit that he's going to accomplish that. So, yes, I realize that that didn't come from the text in any way, okay? But the principle was what I was trying to, uh, to share with us in the way of application. So if you have your Bibles, and y'all forgive me, I'm going to take this off. <laughs> we had the heat on this morning, and uh, George, I think, has made sure that all the air conditioners are on now because everybody was fanning and all of that. So, um, so uh, chapter 7 and chapter 8 of Zechariah. We're going to pick up. We divided the book. Again, last week, if you were here, we divided the book into three parts, uh, the 1 through 6, 7 and 8, and then 9 through the end of the, end of the book, and we'll look at that next week. But today, it's 7 through 8. We've got two goals this morning. Our goal is to teach the book of Zechariah. I want you to leave here knowing what chapters 7 and 8 are all about. But at the same time, I want there to be some, some way, what, why is this in here? What is God trying to communicate to us from leaving the book of Zechariah in our Bibles? And so chapter 7 begins like this, uh, verse 1. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah in the, on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer, Sherezer and Regem Melech, 
and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priest of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? And so as chapter 7 begins, it's a new thing. It's two years after the previous part uh, of, of Zechariah's book. And what we find is these men have come from Bethel, just outside of Jerusalem. They have come, and they're, they're asking this question, should we weep and abstain on the fifth month? In other words, what they're asking is, should we fast? Should we weep and fast on, uh, on the fifth month? of the year. Now, based on their Babylonian names, I mean, the names that they, they're given here, Sherezer and Regimelech, they're most likely Babylonian-born Jews. They're probably some of the young men that came back in the exile from Babylon. And uh, so they come with this question. But that question probably doesn't make any sense to you. It didn't make any sense to me. So let me give you some context that'll make all of this make sense to us. After the fall of Jerusalem, when, uh, when God had judged Judah and, and Babylon had come down and destroyed the city and carried the people in exile away for 70 years, Israel established four days of mourning to commemorate that. And so they had four days a year in which they observed a fast, remembering things about what had happened to them. And the first one was in the seventh month, and it remembered the assassination of Gadaliah. Now, if you know your, your Jewish history, after Nebuchadnezzar had defeated them, he left them. He did not exile them. He put a, a, a puppet king in place, Gadaliah. But what happened was the Jews didn't like that. They didn't want that. They killed Gadaliah. They assassinated him. And when they did, that brought the ire of, uh, of Nebuchadnezzar back against Jerusalem. And so they commemorated the murder of Gadaliah with a fast because they said, well, this is really where this destruction of Jerusalem began. So they had a fast in the seventh month, remembering that. Then they set up a second fast in the 10th month. And this fast was to commemorate the beginning of the siege of the city of Jerusalem. So it obviously took a number of months for Nebuchadnezzar to bring his army down there. And uh, so on the 10th month, they remembered the fact that Nebuchadnezzar showed up with all of his men. The third fast was on the fourth month, and this is when they remembered the breach of the walls in Jerusalem. So it took from the 10th month to the fourth month, I think it's about six months for Nebuchadnezzar to actually break through the walls of Jerusalem. And then the last fast, or the fourth one, was in the fifth month, and it remembered the actual destruction of Solomon's temple. So you kind of get the picture. For the last 70 years, Israel has been observing these four fasts, and the fifth month fast was over the temple. So now the people are back home, the temple is being rebuilt, and so, so these people from outside of Jerusalem, these Jews, come into the city and they come to ask the priests and the prophets, do we still need to keep the fifth month fast? Now why are they asking that? Well, if you're tracking with me, you know, because they're building the temple back, right? The temple's being rebuilt. Do we still fast the destruction of Solomon's temple when the temple is being rebuilt? And so that's their question. And the rest of chapters 7 and 8 are going to be God's answer to that question. Do we fast the fifth month? Do we fast? And so God's going to have four responses, four responses in chapters 7 through 8. And each one of them is going to begin with the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. That's how you can know where the break is. And, uh, and so I'm going to tell you where the breaks are, and I'm going to share with you the four messages that God, God gives. And I'm also going to kind of condense them into a one-line statement, which uh, each of the four messages, I think, have a point, all right? 
So here's the first message. It's in chapter 7, 4 through 7. And here's the, here's the message that God gives them. I never asked you to fast. When you fasted in the fifth and the seventh month, you did those things for yourselves. It wasn't anything that I expected. It wasn't anything that I asked you to do. In verse 5, God asked this rhetorical question. When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month, in the seventh month. Now notice, they just asked about the fifth month. God brings up the fifth and the seventh fast. And he says, when you fasted for those 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat and drink for yourselves? Do not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? And, and here's, the, here's the intent of those words. He's basically saying, this is something you guys did for yourself. It wasn't anything that I commanded you to do. It was your idea. And then he continues in verse 7 and says, Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her in the south and in the lowland were inhabited? In other words, he says, what happened to you? Isn't that what I told you was going to happen to you? Why would I want you to fast this? This is what I told you would happen to you when you disobeyed me. And so here's what the Lord's saying. Your fathers didn't listen, and my word was fulfilled, and I never asked for, for this fast. I did not want this fast. Now here's a bit of information that I didn't know, so pay attention because you're, going to, you're probably going to challenge this, and you're probably going to say, that's just not true. But did you know that God only prescribed one fast in the Bible? He only prescribed one fast in the Bible, and that fast is on the Day of Atonement. And even that command to fast is questionable, as, I, as I'll show you in just a few moments. But here's the point. Here's the point. And, and God's first reply to them is, I never asked for this fast. Didn't want this fast. This was your doing. Number two message, chapter 7, verse 8 through 14. Here's, here's the condensed version. No, I don't want you to fast four times a year. What I really want from you is for you to be holy. What I really want from you is for you to obey me. That's what I really want from you. In verse 9, thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy on one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. God is saying, hey, what I really want from you isn't a food fast. What I really want from you is to fast evil and to do good, to fast wickedness and to do what I tell you to do. That's what I really want from you. Now, keep in mind that God um, never asked them to fast any day except the Day of Atonement, okay, and maybe not even then. So, so fasting somehow became part of their tradition. It probably grew out of the Day of Atonement fast that God commanded, but it's nowhere else commanded in the Scripture. And, uh, and so it kind of grew out of that. And so when we get to the book of Isaiah, now remember, he was a prophet prior to the fall of Jerusalem, prior to this exile, and he was a major prophet. And you'll remember that, that this whole thing about fasting is going on. And, uh, and so the people say, look, you do not, this is Isaiah 58, God's the people are saying to God through the prophet, look, you do as you please on the, excuse me, why have we fasted, but you have not seen? We have denied ourselves, but you have not noticed. So, so basically they say, God, we've been fasting all these times. Why haven't you noticed? Why doesn't it change anything? And then God's reply to them is similar to what he's saying in Zechariah. He says, look, you do as you please on the day of your fast and oppress all your workers. You fast with contention and strife to strike viciously with your fist. You cannot fast as you do today, hoping to make your voice heard on high. 
In other words, you think going without food moves me when this is how you are? And then he goes on and he says, here's the fast that I really want from you. And, and, and by implication, it's not a food fast. Here's what I really want. Isn't the fast that I choose to break the chains of wickedness, to untie the ropes of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, to tear off every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the poor and homeless into your house, to clothe the naked when you see him, and not to ignore your own flesh and blood? Then your light will appear like the dawn, and your recovery will come quickly. Your righteousness will go before you, and the Lord's glory will be your rear guard." In other words, what the Lord was saying was really, really clear. And, and, and I'm going to speak in some really strong language. God's basically saying, I have no interest in your food fast. I have no interest in it. If indeed your heart is not fasting the things that I want you to fast, which are things of unrighteousness, things of sin. And in fact, how, how do you do this? Here's the fast I want. I want you to share your food with the hungry. I want you to bring the poor and the homeless into your house. I want you to clothe the naked. I want you to care about your flesh and blood. Then your glory will shine like the noonday. Then, then, it's gonna, then I will be really pleased with you. That's Isaiah. Now let's go back to Zechariah to this second message. And God is talking about the people prior to the fall, in verse, prior to the fall of, of Jerusalem, and prior to the exile, verse 11. He says, but talking about their forefathers, but they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. Now I love this next line. God says, they made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called, and they would not hear, so they called. I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land was left desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. desolate. So here's what God's saying. For 70 years, you know, 70 years earlier, I, I just kept asking your fathers to listen. Listen to me. Listen to me. They made their hearts diamond hard and would not listen to me. Now he's basically saying, listen to me, you. You new generation of Jewish people, you remnant that's come back from Babylon, listen to me. What I desire is not your food fast. What I desire is your fast of holiness, your fast of following me, your fast of doing my will. The third message, chapter 8, verse 1 through 17. And here's an, here it is in a nutshell. I judged Israel, but now I am equally intent on blessing her. Yep, I did judge them, and you guys fasted, etc. You know, not for me. I mean, I never asked you for that. But I judged them, but now I am equally intent on blessing her. Verse 2, I am extremely jealous for Zion. I am jealous for her with great passion. I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the, the holy mountain. God is basically saying, I'm rebuilding the temple. My presence is coming back. Jerusalem is going to be restored. And, and, and Jerusalem will be my holy city again. In verse 4, he paints this picture of Jerusalem prospering and at peace. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with his staff in hand because of great age, and the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Well, it reminded me of Mayberry when I read that. 
You know, basically he's saying the old people are going to sit out on the porch with their canes and they're going to be watching the children play in the streets because Jerusalem is going to be a place of prosperity. He goes on in verse 7, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. The temple is going to be rebuilt. Jerusalem is going to be restored. I am for Jerusalem. Why would I want you to fast those fast? In verse 11, he reminds them of how it was before them, before the fall, before the exile. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts, for there shall be sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit. The ground shall give its produce. The heavens shall give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. Can you imagine? Listen. I really want you to understand this because this is the book of Zechariah. He's writing to people who have been judged for 70 years, who have been fasting, remembering all these terrible things that happened to him. And now he's saying, that's all changed, everybody. You're back home now. I'm for you. I'm going to restore you. And everything that your fathers went through, that's, that's a byword. That's in the past. I am going to bless you. So be strong now. Word of encouragement. Do you remember? We talked about this last week. Zechariah is a prophet of encouragement. He's like after you get a whooping. He's like Father God's coming and just hugging Israel and saying, hey, I love you. I haven't given up on you. I still, I'm there for you. It's like a dad or a mom who after discipline just smothers their child with love. You know, lest, lest their discipline be, mis, be misconstrued. What an encouraging word. Verse 16. These are things that you shall do. And again, he kind of ends this section. These are things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and then make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. And love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And there's just one final kind of summing up reminder. Guys, don't go back. Don't go back and be like your forefathers 70 years ago. Be different. Love me. Follow me. This is what God desires of them, not the fast that they're doing. And the fourth lesson, the final, final word from God is in verse 18 through verse 23. And the final message is this, stop fasting. Stop fasting all four fast. And instead, turn those days of mourning into days of joy. God tells them to stop the fast. He says, and I think this is verse 18, the fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth month and the fast of the seventh month and the fast of the tenth month shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feast. Therefore, love truth and peace. And remember, they came asking about the fifth fast. And God speaks to all four fasts. And he said, these fasts are not to be times of fasting and mourning anymore. They're to be times of, of rejoicing and gladness and joy. Instead, you are to make them feast days, basically God is saying. In verse 20, he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, People shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts uh, in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from, from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you. For we have heard God is with you. 
I think that's a promise that to the people that Zechariah is speaking to. And he's saying, so am I going to restore your fortune? So, so am I going to bless you that, that people from all around are going to come to Jerusalem? And I think he's pointing to the day of Passover because that's when they would come into the city and celebrate the day of atonement. He's basically saying people are going to come from all over to worship. And he's saying people from other nations are going to say, man, we want to know what, we want to know this God that you guys, that you guys follow. Now, now, let me say this, and I've said this many times, but, it, you know, repetition's good for us. We get it. God's goal for Israel was always this. My relationship with you is going to be so powerful, so pertinent, so, so life-changing that, that other people are going to say, we want that God. We want to know your God because, because of what's happening in your nation. Now, listen, it never really was like that because Israel was always so rebellious. Now, there were times like this when they came back and the remnant that came back under Ezra and under others, I mean, they had a heart for God. So there have been times when, when, when the nation was doing what God wanted it to do, but so often you know, God was having to correct them, and it was just a remnant of people in the, amongst the Jews that, that loved God and, and followed God. But God is saying to them, man, these days of fasting, they're done, and they should be days of feasting and days of celebration over what I am doing and what God, and what God is, uh, is doing. I think, uh, and again, not to muddy the waters, because I really believe this is something that they were saying to, that, God, that Zechariah and God were saying to this group of people. But there's a sense in which, you know, um, where he talks about in verse 22, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to, to entreat favor of the Lord. You know, there's a sense in which that happened when Jesus Messiah came and he stepped onto the scene. And nations from around the world came seeking Jesus. And then people would grab hold of Paul's and, and Peter's and other Jewish robes and say, tell us about this God. And uh, so there's a sense in which there was a complete completion of that. But I believe this is a promise to them. God is saying, I'm so going to bless you now that everybody around you is going to take note of this. All right. That ends Zechariah 7 and 8. So what is the, what's the application for us, right? What, what does this mean? How, how, is there any kind of takeaway for us? Well, you know, almost right away, I, I felt like there was. And, and so I'm, I want to share that with you a little bit. And, uh, and specifically, I, I think the takeaway is answering that same question that they asked. Should we fast? Should we fast? And, uh, and I, I must confess, this study forced me to reexamine some of my own thoughts about fasting. Um, and uh, so, you know, I've been rethinking that whole thing. As many of you know, fasting has been a part of my, my walk with Jesus. And, uh, but it's, it's kind of made me rethink some of the things that I thought. So I want to share with you my discovery this week as, as I asked myself this question, the question that those Jewish, from, those Jewish people from Bethel asked the priest and the prophets. And here's, here's some of the things that, that I discovered this week. First... God never prescribed fasting food as something that he desired from his people, at least not on, a, on an ongoing basis. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm just like, wow, really? But you look it up, and, you, and I may be wrong. Listen, I, you know, I only had a week, <laughs> so I may be wrong, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. There's no prescription for fasting in the Bible other than the one day of atonement. And, and even the Day of Atonement 
people argue that it wasn't calling them to fast. Now, I think it was, but, but let me read you the passage. It's in Leviticus chapter 16, 29 to 31. And this is, what, this is what Leviticus says. This is to be a permanent statute for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you are to practice self-denial and do no work. Both the native and the alien who reside among you, atonement will be made for you on this day to cleanse you, and you will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of complete rest for you, and you must practice self-denial. It is a permanent statue. So that's the verse. And in verse 31, the Hebrew literally means to humble yourself before God. It's to be a day you to humble yourself. And, and the word can also be to afflict yourself. And so uh, the, the word there for, for yourself is the word nefesh. It means your entire being. So we're to humble ourselves and we're to afflict ourselves. So liter- what, does that, what does that mean? How do I afflict myself? How do I, how do I humble myself? Well, it's obvious that the Jews understood this to mean fasting food to going without food on the Day of Atonement. The reason I say that is you just find tons of rabbinical references to it throughout the ages, but even in the, in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 27, verse 9, the Day of Atonement is called the Day of the Fast. So it was the one fast that God prescribed. But, but here's what I want you to hear. The first covenant, or the old covenant, has passed away. And with it, it's regulations. And so this regulation of fasting on the Day of Atonement is no more, not for Jews, And it never was for us as Gentiles because we were never under the first covenant. And in fact, if you were here last week in Sunday school, we were studying Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, where that was the big question. Do Gentiles and do Jews today still need to keep the Old Testament covenant laws? And the answer was no. The answer was no, we do not. It is by faith in the Lord Jesus that our sin is forgiven. And so in the New Testament... There is never a command. Now, y'all check me out, okay? Y'all check me out because I know a lot of y'all fast. But y'all check me out. But there's not a command to fast in the New Testament. Now, I've spent spent many, many days fasting. And there's not a command in the New Testament to fast, okay? Now, what we do find in the New Testament, actually, is I believe people adding to the text. Let me explain. You know, for those of us that are Christians, we... uh, we don't believe there's one text. You know, if you were a Muslim, then I don't remember what year it was, but all the variants in the text were burned and only one was kept. And in, 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 our, in our way of understanding is there's all these manuscripts that have survived, and our goal is to try to determine what is the most reliable because they have some variants. They have some differences. Now, I want to read you some of the differences. The oldest manuscripts that have survived... Read like this, Mark chapter 9, verse 29. And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. The more recent manuscripts, when I say recent, I think they're a couple of hundred years younger than the oldest manuscripts that we have. They say this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer and fasting. All right? Everybody following me? I know I'm getting a little bit technical, but this is important. Matthew 17, 21 is not even found in newer manuscripts. If you're here this morning and you're reading from an ESV, an NIV, or you're reading from a a New American Standard, the New American Standard may have it in the text, but Matthew 17, 21 doesn't even exist in your Bibles. You You can verify that. And here's the verse, 17, 21. It says, however, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. 
And really, that is the same story that I just quoted you from Mark and Matthew. But that verse has been added in the younger manuscripts. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5, in the older manuscripts, reads like this, Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So in 1 Corinthians, Paul is instructing married people. He's saying, listen, if you guys want to abstain from sex for a while for the purpose of praying together, you know, and seeking the Lord, that's good. There's no mention of fasting there. But in the newer manuscripts... It reads, devote yourselves to prayer and fasting. Now, one of two things are possible. One of two things are, are, are definitely true. In the older manuscripts, they removed the word fasting, or in the newer manuscripts, they added the word fasting. Everybody following me? And, and one of the rules of textual criticism, trying to figure out what is the more reliable text that we have that God has preserved for us, is that the older the manuscript, the more reliable. But in this case, I, I think that it's pretty obvious that the words fasting were added to add weight to the idea of fasting. All right, so my first point, God never prescribed fasting food as something he desired from his people, at least not on an ongoing basis. Now, here's the second thing I discovered. If there's any kind of fast that God wants from us and expects from us, it is for us to fast sin and selfishness in our lives. Now, I've said a lot about this, and I'm not going to belabor this point, but God never commanded fasting food, but he does say, this is the fast that I want from you. Bring the hungry into your home. Share your wealth with those who are, are more needy than you. Bring the homeless into your house. Hey, the people who are being abused and downtrodden and oppressed, you help them. You release them. You do your best to fight for them. Those are the things that God says are the things that we should fast for. Those are the things we should fast. Ungodliness is what we should fast. It's never food fast, okay? Uh, so, so he's saying fast immorality. Fast immorality. He says fast, fast being greedy. Stop being unjust. Stop being lustful. Stop being a liar. Stop being cheating. Stop being a cheater. Stop being a hateful person. Those are the things that I want you to fast, not food. In the grand scheme of things, I will make this statement, I don't think God cares one iota if you fast food, but do not fast ungodliness in your life. In other words, if you're just living ungodly and you don't, and you don't care about people and you're not living God's ethic and you're fasting, you know, it's, it's like in Isaiah 58. God, why aren't you hearing us? And God says, you think I'm going to hear you when, when you're living like this but fasting food and you think that makes me hear you? I mean, he's pretty strong in his wording. And so here's the thing. You know, guys, with the fast that God desires of you is that you fast sin and, and ungodliness and, and you, should, you should practice holiness. Here's the third thing. It seems Jesus didn't practice fasting except at the start of his ministry. Now, you know, uh, Jesus gets baptized. You remember that? And he and John have this argument. Why should I baptize you? You remember that, right? And Jesus said, that all righteousness might be fulfilled. You baptize me. But immediately after that, he went off into the boondocks by himself. He went into the back country. You know, and I don't think it was the woods either. I think it was the wilderness. I don't think, you know, he went out there for 40 days. And for 40 days, the Bible says he fasted. And at the end of that 40 days of fasting or, or during it, he's tempted by the accuser, by Satan. 
And he's tempted. And, and you remember, in all three temptations, he, he fights those temptations and he wins. And he's, he's fasting during that time. But after that, there is not a mention in the Bible, in the New Testament, about Jesus fasting. Now, you're, you're going to say, if you're, if you're tracking with me and you're a logical thinker, you're saying, and you, you talk about, you say, Jimmy, that's an argument from silence. That's an argument from silence, and you can't make that argument. And, and I will concur that it's, it's, it is an argument from silence in part, but not in its totality. Because in Matthew chapter 9, verse 14, we read that John's disciples came to Jesus saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. So according to this, Jesus' disciples didn't fast during his earthly ministry. All right. So I guess we could say, well, Jesus fasted, but they didn't. But I think that's highly unlikely. So Jesus' ministry begins with fasting, but he doesn't seem to have fasting during the next three years of, of doing ministry with his disciples. Okay. So what does that say to me? What does that say to us? It says at least this that it wasn't an expectation, an ongoing kind of expectation that we need to be fasting all the time just as a part of our, of our Christian walk. We should be fasting because Jesus didn't fast during those three years. Number four, early church leaders continued to fast in the days of the new covenant, all right? There are only two examples in your Bible, and again, feel, please, I, I, I welcome you to to check me out on these things, but I could only find two places in the New Testament where church leaders are said to fast, or, or people in the church are said they're fasting. One of them was Acts 13, and you'll remember that the church leaders are praying, and they're going to send Barnabas and Saul out on a mission trip. And here's what it reads, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Acts 14, on that same journey, it says in verse 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now, those are the only two times that it mentions fasting among Christians in the New Testament. However, it is two times, right? I mean, they did, fa they did practice fasting in the New Testament. And, and so that's something for us to keep in mind. And then my final point, and then I'm finished, okay? But my final thing is this. Jesus never commanded fasting, but neither did he ever condemn it. And he did seem to presuppose that his followers would fast. And, uh, and so he gave us some instructions about fasting, okay? And here's those instructions, Matthew 6, 16 on the Sermon on the Mount. Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. For they neglect their appearance so that they will notice by, they'll be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have the reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face so that your fasting will be noticed by men, will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So here's, here's, what, I want to, here's what I want you to hear from what Jesus told us. He said, number one, generally fasting should be a personal, private humility that you do before God. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not a place for corporate or external 
ritual of fasting together as a group. I, I say that because I just quoted you in the, in the point I made before. The leaders of the church were fasting together when God commissioned, you know, Paul and Barnabas. So, you know, I can make the statement that somehow another group fasting is wrong, but, but Jesus' point seems to be that when you fast, it's, it's a humility that you personally undertake between you and God and, and no one and no one else. So, with that as a backdrop, let me answer the question, should we fast? Should we fast? Here's my answer, nothing, nothing earth-shattering, but here it is. Only if you want to. Only if it's something in your heart. There's no prescribed fasting. There's no, God says, fast this many times or fast this way to somehow, whatever. Fasting should be, according to everything we read, it should be an afflicting of your soul, afflicting of your being by yourself to, to honor him, to humble yourself. Now, the Bible tells us all the time, humble yourself, humble yourself before the Lord. This act of fasting is, is a humbling act, evidently. So should we fast today? I mean, God was telling them, stop those four fasts. I didn't ask for them. I don't want them. This is the time I'm blessing you. I want you to actually turn those fasts into feasting days. So he didn't want those four fasts. How about us? I would say this. God, God there, there is no prescribed fast. You know, the, the Jews obviously hadn't fast these certain days. I'm, I'm convinced that it's probably not a good idea for us to say we're all going to fast on a certain day. However, if your heart is overflowing with, with brokenness before God or, 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 or your, your heart's filled with humility before God and you want to express that to the Lord, then you express it through fasting. But let it be something between you and the Lord. Not, not anything that you show off, not anything that you tell anybody about. It's just, a, it's just a humbling of yourself before the Lord because you want to. You're so moved by worship. You're so moved by worship. So... I will continue to fast from time to time as the Lord, as the Lord moves me. But I, I tell you, I have a different perspective on it today. I have a different perspective. It's not, I'm fasting not because it's something God desires of me, but I'll be fasting because it's a humbling of my own heart before him and something that I want to give to him. So if you want to give to the Lord the humility of your heart and you want to give it through fasting, then by all means, go for it. Now, I'm done and I'm finished but here's how the Lord wanted me to end this, as best I can tell. And that is, I would like to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. And, and I do want to call all of us to a fast. I do want to call us to the fast that God says, this is the fast that I want. And, and your heart's just, just seeking the Lord as best you can. And I know when I ask people to do this, it's really hard. It's hard for me when somebody asks me. But as best you can, bow your heart before the Lord. And I'm going to tell you the fast that he desires of you. He desires for you to fast your self-will. He desires for you to let go of your desires and be willing to submit to him. So this morning, what is there in your heart and life that you need, that you know it's your will over his and you're choosing your will and you're not you're not fasting your will for his. You're, you're not submitting yourself to him. What is it? And let the Holy Spirit now just speak to you. So if it's in your heart this morning and the Holy Spirit has put his finger on a thing, maybe more than one thing, 
that you, he wants you to fast. He wants you to let go of that. Surrender it. Uh, maybe you've been here many times before and you say, oh, Jimmy, you just don't know. I've surrendered this so many times, but I pick it back up. And I hear you. But, but here's a new morning, new opportunity, new day for you to put it down again, for you to fast it, for you to let it go, for you to surrender it. And just in the, in the quietness of your own heart, in the privacy of your own mind with the Lord, just offer it to him. Surrender it up. God, we thank you for being a God who loves us so much, Lord, and, and who cares about us. And Lord, just thank you for being who you are. Lord, receive these fasts that we raise up before you this morning that we say, Lord, take. We, we give these to you. We, we surrender these things. We let them go. Lord, by your spirit now, help us to die to those things that we've surrendered, that we've fasted. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. This message has been brought to you by Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, please visit us on the web at www.baconscastle.com.